So what happened yesterday? We were supposed to go to the auto show. I waited for you. You never came. Uh, I'm sorry. I got really busy. How long did you wait? Five minutes. Five minutes? That's it? What's the difference? You never showed up. Well, I could have. I mean, last week we waited for that friend of Kramer's for like 40 minutes. Well, we barely knew the guy. So the longer you know someone, the shorter you wait for him. That's the way it works. When did you tell George to be here? I told him to meet us here in 10 minutes. How long has it been? About five. That's enough. Yeah. Really? All right. <laughs> There's nothing like an awkward transition from a song about the good, good father to Seinfeld. Uh, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden, and I'm excited about today's message, but I'm also a little bit concerned about today's message. It could be a little wonky. It's easy in this, for this topic today to get caught in the weeds, but uh, the title of today's message is... good stuff right there, ain't it? All right. Um, what are you waiting for? This continues our series, uh, this lectionary series we've been doing this year uh, based on the gospel of Mark, and we finished with Mark, and we're moving on to Acts chapter 1. Uh, today, the passage is verse 6, for 11, uh, 6 through 11, and uh, it's, it's a difficult passage for a lot of people to deal with. <clears throat> So let's just get right into it and read it a little bit for you, okay? Uh, Acts 1, 6 through 11. I didn't put it on the screen. I'm just going to read it for you. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? This is after the resurrection. He's been with them for a few weeks, and they're still asking the question, so you're going to come and kick the Romans' butts now? You're going to kick them out of Jerusalem and take over? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. <clears throat> so what we like to do in the garden, we believe, and whenever you look at a passage, for you to really understand it, you have to have three applications. First of all, you have to understand the history of the passage. What about man? What did he do? Why did he do it? And how? And then after you understand the history, then you can answer questions about the theology. What about God? What did he do? And, and why did he do it? And then and only then, after you understand the history... In the theology, can you have a devotional application of the passage? What about me? What am I supposed to do? Why am I supposed to do it? How? And what happens is many times is we like to skip right to the devotional part of a passage. And when you do that, it gives you a bad theology, a bad application, because you don't really understand what the Scripture is teaching. So that's kind of like we like to do. So let's look at the history of this passage. First of all, just understand what's going on. Jesus is resurrected. We talked about that last week. You know, because it was Easter. He's risen from the grave, 
And he's been with them for a while in person. So not only is he resurrected, but they know he's resurrected. And so what's interesting is they are not operating at this point. And see if you can get me, I don't mean to minimize it, but they're not operating on faith as we know it. Our faith being the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. They have seen the resurrected Jesus. They have spoken with him. They have talked to him. They've been interacting with him for a while now. And here's what has begun to take place. The church age has begun. The temple period, the time where God interacted with his people through temple worship, that book has been closed, even though the temple would go on for probably another 40 years-ish. The church age has begun. And in spite of all this, and in spite of the very clear teachings of Jesus that he said, look, I'm not coming as a military leader. I'm not coming as a political leader. I'm coming as a savior, as the Lamb of God who is going to die for the sins of his people so I can set up my own kingdom that is not of this world. But for some reason, the disciples are still hopeful and waiting for an earthly kingdom. They still have this mindset that all the things that are wrong with our government, all the things we disagree upon morally and spiritually and financially, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set it all straight. He's going to blow up the establishment. He's going to come and he's going to tell all the politicians and all the leaders, Here's what you've been doing wrong, and here's why you're out of a job. I'm taking over. And they're waiting for Jesus to come back and make everything right. And after all the things that had happened, everything they had seen, all the teachings about the kingdom of heaven, the disciples still had this hope for an earthly kingdom, of an expulsion of Rome and its corruption from Jerusalem. And they are sitting around waiting for something. They're waiting for something that they think is better than what they have right there, right now, which is Jesus with them. And Jesus says very clearly, listen carefully to me. I'm not going to talk to you about Rome, but I will tell you this, you're going to receive power. And it's going to be far greater than any obsession you could ever have with government. So that's the history of the passage. That's what's going on. Now let's look at the theology of this passage. First of all, here's what Jesus does. He promises no timeline for his return. Look, nobody knows. Nobody knows the day or the hour or the year. Nobody has a clue. Only God knows when I shall return. But he does promise kingdom power. Nobody knows, but in the meantime, I don't want you to sit around waiting So what's going to happen? Instead of you waiting, you're going to get this Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit is going to empower you to expand and grow my kingdom. And it's going to be, listen, amazing power. It's going to have power to take the words that I've given you. It's going to be able to take those words. And it's going to be able to open eyes and quicken dead hearts and cause them to have the gift of what? Faith, the gift of faith to believe in the resurrection. To believe that I am the way, I am the only truth, and I am the only life, and no man will ever come to the Father except through me. And this Spirit will give you that power. And then he leaves. And there's two angels that describe his return. They say, hey, what's your problem? Stop staring into the sky. Stop being mesmerized by the fact that he has ascended. 
because you're supposed to be witnesses. Don't sit around. But then they explain, the Jesus that you saw leave, he will come back, and he comes back, and there's three things they explain. He's going to come back personally. The same person you see going up is coming back. He's going to come back visibly. He comes in the same way. That is, he will be seen by men coming as he left in his body. And then they explain his coming will be glorious. As you saw him go into heaven, accompanied by angels and various signs, you'll see him come back the same way. Now, this is pretty cool stuff. But the devotional application of this is nearly impossible if you don't understand the history. So what has happened over the course of, actually, this has really only happened since about 1840, 1850. There is this new, popular, flawed interpretation of the return of Jesus that I think has caused some problems for the church. And that basically is this. We are waiting for the reign of Jesus. We are waiting for Jesus to come back and to really show those evil people what's what. And here's how it's going to happen. Here is the popular flawed interpretation. Here's how it's going to happen. The world is a bad place, and it's going to get worse. And so what we're waiting for at some point is this thing called the rapture, where God's going to come down, and he's going to take everyone who's a Christian up to heaven with him and then leave all the garbage makers alone by themselves. And then because of that, there's going to be seven years of terrible tribulation. The suffering is going to be so bad It's going to be really, really rough, and you better be ready for it, and you better be scared. Because if you are, according to the popular series that made a ton of money, millions of dollars, if you are left behind, you will be facing the seven years of tribulation. And then at the end of the tribulation, tell me if you think this sounds a little bit like what the disciples were waiting for. There's going to be this huge battle, this battle of Armageddon. And it's going to look like the good guys are about to lose. And what's going to happen is Jesus is going to come back and destroy the enemies in the nick of time. And he will set up his new millennial kingdom. And that will begin a thousand year reign of Jesus where everything will be everything you thought politics should be. You see, what happens is this is a theological system based upon one particular flawed interpretation of a passage in Daniel. Let me read this for you. I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. In other words, he goes up to God and was presented before him. And to him, at that moment that he came up, was was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And what begins to happen is there's this flawed interpretation that this is a prophecy of the Son of Man's descent from heaven. But in reality, if you look at it, it's actually a prophecy of his entrance into heaven. He comes to the Father, and when he comes to the Father, he is given dominion. He is given this kingdom. And let me ask you a question. Doesn't it sound a little bit like missions? To him was given the dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve. Doesn't that sound like missions? And what we see happen here is Daniel is talking about the prophecy of Jesus going to heaven and starting the kingdom of God through his church. 
And what's happening there is there's a misperception that this is a prophecy of his return. And this theology is called, and I'm going to get a little wonky, and I'm afraid to use these words, but just bear, you can Google it later if you don't. It's called premillennialism, which means that Jesus will not come back until he's ready to start his kingdom. Going further, and this has nothing to do with an opinion based upon what God is doing with Israel or anything like that, but there is a concept that some expect Christ will return today or this day or any moment based upon the belief that Israel captured Jerusalem in 1967. But you think about this. This is the same error the disciples made in Acts chapter 1. Are you going to set up the kingdom now? We're ready. And so while God may still have some dealings with Israel that he's doing and fulfilling some promises and things like that, it really has nothing to do with his return or the beginning of a millennial reign. Because see, what happens is any teaching that says, well, Israel controls Jerusalem, so Jesus must be coming anytime soon, well, then that's actually a direct contradiction to what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, is it not? No one knows the day. No one knows the hour. No one knows the time. So stop trying to figure it out. That's God's business. But in the meantime, I don't want you waiting around. I'm going to give you power. See, Jesus made it very clear in many places what the kingdom of heaven was supposed to be, what his reign was supposed to look like. And what I've done is I've picked out a few examples. of that. There are so many. But I picked out three of my favorites to explain it to you. Okay, So the first one is in Luke chapter 17, 20 and 21. uh, Being asked by the Pharisees, these are the religious elite, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. In other words, when are you going to come and kick these Romans out? When are you going to come with the armies of heaven and wipe them off the face of the earth? And look what Jesus answers. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be seen or observed. Nor would they say, look, here it is. There's the kingdom. We know for sure. It's right there. It's tangible. It's physical. Boom. Or there. And he says, for behold, the kingdom of God is is in the midst of you. Isn't that powerful? You want some more? How about this one? Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's a good one too. What about this one? I love this one. This is where he's going through, you know, he's getting ready to be killed. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief of priests have delivered you over to me? What have you done? In other words, how can you really be king of a kingdom when your own people that you're supposed to lead have turned you over to me to be killed? How in the world is this a kingdom? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Boom. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... In other words, a physical, tangible government, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And so Jesus makes it very clear that the concept of the kingdom of God is not an earthly, tangible, here it is, there it is, there's the capital. That's not what he is saying. So why is this important? What is the devotional application? Why is this important? Because I believe that the flawed teachings around the return of Jesus 
this is important now, and I'm trying not to get lost in the weeds here, that this can keep Christians thinking that we are more like resistance fighters instead of kingdom agents. That we're more like guerrilla warfare. We're in this dark time, and, and we don't really have enough power. The world is too evil, and all we can do is every once in a while win a couple skirmishes here and there, but we're really waiting for the big victory when Jesus comes in on the white horse and destroys all our enemies. That somehow that this teaching, basically what it logically turns to is we're not in the kingdom. And so we are limited in what the church can accomplish in this depraved world until Jesus returns and sets up some sort of theocracy with him as quote unquote president. And what can happen is when you have that concept of the return of Jesus, I think there are some examples of what can happen. First of all, you can begin to have a religious obsession. This is a result of legalism, living in fear of being left behind. I mean, isn't that the whole point of that left behind series? So that people will be afraid and turn to Jesus? There can also be a political obsession, and I've seen a lot of Christians fall into this trap, thinking that we need to conform our government to our biblical standards, because once we do that, we hasten the return of Jesus and the beginning of the kingdom. We have to have righteous, godly men leading us in Washington or in Rome or in Paris or wherever they are. And then there's another thing that can happen. There can be a prophetic obsession, focusing on something that we are actually told in Acts chapter 1 that we have no clue when will happen. Yet there are sections of Christianity, good people who love Jesus and love God, they spend their whole lives trying to unfold the mysteries and saying, I think I know when the Lord's coming back. I may not know the time or the day, but it's going to be in this decade. Okay, I was wrong, so maybe it's this century. And people have been making predictions about the return of Jesus since he left, and they've all been incorrect. Because Acts says no one knows the time of the hour. And what is it with this obsession with when Jesus will return? Because the obsession is basically saying we have to wait for something. We can't really do everything we want to do as a church because we are limited until our Jesus comes back and is reigning the world from his throne. But in reality... All of these take our focus off of what it should be on. What really should be driving us is the desire. And remember, Jesus even asked this of his disciples, Peter. You know what our our focus and obsession should be on? Not politics, not religion, not prophecy, but on feeding his sheep. That's what our focus should be turned on is feeding his sheep. Because understand something about this kingdom that we're in. We are in the kingdom now. And we are advancing, not waiting. In other words, we're not waiting around. I wrote this down because I want to get it right. We are not waiting around for Jesus to come back and make everything right in our eyes. Oh, these conservatives or these liberal politicians, they're going to get theirs when Jesus comes back. We're not waiting 
We are advancing. The kingdom of heaven is advancing now. All over the world, there are people that are risking their lives through faith to go and take the gospel to unreached people groups to fulfill what is talked about in the verses I showed you earlier, that God has been, Jesus has been given dominion and people of all nations and all tongues would worship him. And the kingdom is advancing That's what the disciples are doing. They were waiting. But you know what else? We are actively faithful, not passively hoping. And let me make sure you understand. Yes, of course, there is hope in being a child of God. And I'm not taking that away. But we are not passively hoping for something big to happen. We are actively faithful. We are pursuing our calling as a church. We are pursuing our calling as God's chosen people that he took out of darkness into light. We are pursuing what we're supposed to do, which is to feed his sheep and to take the gospel to all nations and all people and all languages. And we are doing it on faith that we know that the word of God never returns empty, but always accomplishes everything that it's supposed to do. And we are doing it in such a way that we know that no matter what happens, we are successful. Because the kingdom can never be overthrown. No matter how evil the politicians are that sit on their thrones, the kingdom of heaven is here and now and will never be wiped away. Ever. Think about this. If God wanted us to wait around for his return, there are several things that he wouldn't have done. This is if we're supposed to wait for him to come back and set up his earthly kingdom. Here are some things he wouldn't have done. He wouldn't have given us the Holy Spirit. Why bother? Because he's got all the power. He'll be here in just a minute. He'll take care of it. He gave us the Holy Spirit, which in reality is the actual presence of God living in the sanctuary, which is what? Us. We are the temple. You know what else he wouldn't have done? He wouldn't have given us unique spiritual gifts and talents. We have such an array of talents in this room even as we speak, but all across the kingdom of heaven, people that are so amazing at writing and teaching and drawing and and speaking and leading and people who are good at serving and people who are good at money and people who are good at so many different things, artists and so many gifted and talented people, why give us spiritual gifts and talents if all we have to do is wait for Jesus to come back and do all the work? You know what else he wouldn't have done if we were just supposed to wait around for his return? Special relationships with each other. As kingdom agents, as kingdom brothers and sisters, all this combined together making us collectively a powerful, advancing team of kingdom agents for Jesus. Guys, let me explain how this works out. We should be just excited about all these things as we would about their future return of our king. But what happens is Christians start beginning, they begin to become obsessed and fixated. Oh, the return of Jesus, the second coming, the second coming. Yes, it's there. Yes, it's real. But it's not what we are living for. We are living for the kingdom, which is where? Now, among us. And as we're going at a breakneck pace trying to fulfill the kingdom and advance the kingdom, we're waiting and we are just as excited about the work that's going on in the kingdom as we are about the return of our king. We're not just less like, okay, we're doing this along, but I'm really waiting for this. No, they're equal. Jesus says, no one knows when. 
So just do what I tell you. Take the Spirit of God. So I was struggling this week to come up with a way to summarize this at the end. Because, you know, there's a lot of pressure each week, right, to hit a home run at the end of the sermon. Wow, that was a really thoughtful thing you said, Pastor Joe. Really, you should, you should be a writer or something, you know. And, and you know. But I, was, I couldn't find anything. So I asked Megan to come up here. You'll see in just a minute. So I came up with a, with a phrase that the first part sounded great, but I didn't know how to end it. So here's the first one. We aren't waiting we are actively working to advance the kingdom. We're not waiting. We are working to call out his chosen from darkness into light, right? Can't you get excited about that? I mean, isn't that what really drives us to have a church in the first place? And why are we doing this? So there are more of us at the party to celebrate his return. Stop waiting. Plan for it. Copyright Megan Mooney, 2016. So I think it's only appropriate that she ends it today. Brothers and sisters, we are called, we are gifted to be agents so that none would be separated, so that all would come to know and the party isn't the same without all of us there. So I invite you to stand with me today. And I charge you to go out into this world being given the Holy Spirit to walk before you, to walk beside you, to walk behind you. I call you to go out into this world with the gifts that you have been given to use them to shine the light of Christ so that people ask you, why are you so different? And you can introduce them to the one who died for them. Go out into this world as an agent, not a waiter. Go out into this world with the love of God the Father, the grace of Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and go out there ready, not waiting. All of God's children said, amen.